continuing our little survey of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And we read briefly today an event that John records for us, and we'll begin from verse 24. So John 20, verse 24, and just to set the context, John has from the 19th verse been describing the appearance to the twelve, that's what they're called, even though at that point they were the ten. The one we read of today is the eleven, but it had been come to use really as a title uh, for that group of the disciples. But they had gathered and Thomas was absent, and John elaborates on that, and we begin reading in verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Let me just pause. Didymus is described elsewhere as the twin. Uh, In Aramaic and Greek, the words that are his name uh, have reference to his being a twin. But verse 25, The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger. And behold my hands, reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. Linda reading, and trust again the Lord to add His blessing to the public reading of His inspired Word. Let's bow our heads and our hearts together. Our Heavenly Father, we come today again pausing corporately to acknowledge Your presence and to ask You that You might grant us help. Again, we gather in this place with different circumstances, different conditions of heart and mind. And yet we gather to read and consider the living Word of the living God. And so we don't gather in vain. We don't gather without hope. And so we ask that You might help us by Your Spirit. Take up the Word. Lord, Oversee our meditations and apply that which we have need of. Lord, bring to mind uh, even things the preacher does not mention by Your Spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As we look at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, we're impressed with the different purposes for which uh, He showed Himself and the different categories, if you will, of how these appearances play out. Some of them are public. We might even say that they're corporate. And they're clearly part of what's described in Acts chapter 1. They're clearly part of those many infallible proofs 
whereby the Lord Jesus showed Himself alive and risen. There are other appearances that seem to be more of a personal and very private nature. The one we look at next is Christ appeared to several of the disciples at the Sea of Galilee, but then He calls Peter aside and takes a walk with him by the shore. That's quite personal indeed. Actually, there's another known but unrecorded meeting of the risen Christ with Peter. Because the disciples exclaimed that the Lord was risen indeed and had appeared unto Simon. It's one of those things we just might wonder. What were the words? What was the atmosphere of that resurrection appearance? Well, these appearances to the disciples gathered in the upper room really would fall more into that category of public and corporate appearances. These are going to be a big part of these men being able to be apostles, to be witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. If we were to take time, we could even pause today and go into some of the theological significance of these two appearances of Christ that John mentions in chapter 20 because they both occur on Sunday. Sunday, Easter, the first day they met was the day of resurrection. And here we read after eight days. Of course, if you see the way John uses his recalling of time in the Gospels, it includes the days on each end. So this is another Sunday. And the disciples are met together. There's great significance to that. R.L. Dabney, if you're ever curious to do some study on the Christian observance of the Lord's Day, or Christian Sabbath as it's called, he makes the the comment as he goes through the times in the New Testament where you see Sunday worship put on display. He says these evidences, these indications in Scripture, they're not numerous, about a half a dozen or so as you count them. He said they're not numerous, but they're distinct. They're singled out for notice. And so I say there are even great theological implications to these two appearances to the disciples in the upper room. But obviously, on this second Lord's Day, there was a personal and a private purpose to our Lord's appearance. Even though all the disciples were present, this appearance is invariably spoken of as Christ's appearance unto Thomas. I think that might even have appeared on the title to my notes. The other disciples are there. But this is a word for an erring disciple. This is a word for Thomas. I want to look at this incident today from two very simple perspectives. I want to look at it from the perspective of unbelief. And I want to look at it from the perspective of renewed faith. But before we even begin, I think we should pause and consider the fact that unbelief and faith or unbelief and belief can coexist in the heart and lives of believers at the same time. You remember the powerful statement of the father of that boy possessed by the dumb spirit. As Christ and the inner circle of disciples were on the Mount of Transfiguration, this father brought his son to the other disciples to cast out this demon. And they were unable to do so Our Lord descends from the mountain. He speaks about a faithless generation. And then He casts out this demon. And before He does so, He speaks to the Father. Asks Him if He has faith. 
And he utters those words. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. So when we come to look at Thomas today, and we consider these themes of unbelief and renewed faith, understand that in Thomas, the life of a child of God, these things coexist. We might even say these things do battle one with another. And each of us, perhaps today, is forced to say, yes, they do battle in my life as well. They both exist in my life at the same time. And so let us look today at this appearance to Thomas. And I want you to consider with me, first of all, the struggles of unbelief. The struggles of unbelief. Thomas is only mentioned in the synoptics in the lists of the twelve disciples. We've talked even about the comments with regard to his name. He's a twin. But John gives us a couple of windows into the character of Thomas. And I want to turn up those other occasions. If you turn back to John chapter 11, John chapter 11, in verse 16, and this will just be breaking into the context, but if we recall the story, this is where Jesus and the disciples have very recently been in Jerusalem. The chief priests and the rulers are threatening him. They're trying to finally be rid of this Jesus, and they depart. They're going to the place where John was baptizing at the first, and then news comes to them that Lazarus, the one that Jesus loves, is sick. And Jesus abides two days still in the same place where he was. It's a great juxtaposition of phrases there. He loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha. So he didn't leave immediately, he stayed there longer. But we read in verse 16 of this chapter. He says, well, verse 15, the Lord says, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. The disciples said, Lord, what do you mean? Why are we going back to Jerusalem? And they just sought recently to stone you there. We're going to go there again? And the Lord says, yes. But it's Thomas that speaks up and replies, verse 16. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with Him. Now that's quite interesting. I think it shows something of the character of Thomas. His love for Christ. He's not saying, well, if He wants to go, let Him go, but we better stay here. No, He says, if the Lord's resolved to go, if these things that we've suggested and even put before Him to maybe worry about or think about or fear, and yet He's going to go anyway, well, let's go. If He's going, we're going. And if He dies, we die. Some commentators that wrestle with that phrase that we may die with Him, maybe Thomas is talking about Lazarus. Uh, I, I just never have seen the logic even of that suggestion. Let's go. Maybe whatever disease Lazarus died from, we can catch it too and die. But the reason for struggling with this is they think, well, Thomas doesn't mean that we might die with Jesus because we know when we read the rest of the story that when the authorities come and they take Jesus away that all the disciples, Thomas included, flee. They're not resolved to die with Him. How many times is it true 
our resolution, our genuine intentions, we fall short of them. And I think indeed that was the case with Thomas. I don't think he's insincere. I don't think he's putting on a show here, but he intends to do the opposite. It's just in that moment of crisis he did, like the others, fail. But he says here, and again this is the little window John gives us as Thomas speaks, let's go with him that we might die with him. And then over in chapter 14 as Christ is giving those instructions that John so fully gives in the last hours of our Lord's ministry with the disciples in the upper room, if you read verse 5 of John 14, Thomas said unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? It's Jesus' answer to him that's that powerful and famous memory verse. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But Thomas here shows some perplexity. Lord, you're, you're talking about going away. You've been speaking to us tonight about these things, but where are you going? We, we, we can't go if we don't know where it is. How are we going to know this? And so, there's some perplexity here. But there's also a desire to be with Jesus. And so, Thomas we see as, we might say as William Hendrickson does, despondent but devoted. Thomas, it seems at least, from these little windows into his character, is one that his first instinct is to say, the glass is half empty rather than the glass is half full. And so when we consider, I say, the struggles of unbelief, there are two of these I think we could perhaps draw out more if we tried. But there are two of these in particular I want to focus on with regard to Thomas here in John 20. And the first is that of isolation. Isolation. Dr. Paisley preached a sermon. I actually can't remember if I heard that particular message or if he just referenced that message in another sermon that I was present for. But he had drawn from John 20 a message on what you miss when you miss church. Well, there's a lot of food for a fuel for a sermon like that in this particular chapter. And I think, of course, it, it touches right at the heart of the matter. Why isn't Thomas with the twelve? The very fact that all of the others are gathered together except for him seems to indicate that there was some announcement, there was some call at least that it's gone forth to bring these men together. You think of the events of that day, the reports already from early in the morning and the women, and that meeting that we don't have the details about with Peter. Now, later in the evening, that meeting of those disciples on the road to Emmaus, of course, the other disciples are gathered together by this time because they go back to meet them there in the upper room. All of them are there except Thomas. If we try and put pieces together from these little windows of his character that are displayed before, perhaps he is so overwhelmed with grief Sorrow, perplexity, Lord, what are you doing? What's happened? Our Savior's dead. That, 
Well, he just doesn't quite feel like being with anybody else. He's struggling with gathering. He'd rather be alone. Well, can I suggest to you that solitude and meditation are good and necessary parts of devotional life. Now, if I can pause here for a minute, solitude and meditation are actually things that our modern culture doesn't seek to encourage and cultivate in people. Now, I know that there are many people in our society today for a host of different reasons that struggle with loneliness. Their circumstances place them alone in their living and much of their other life. And so it's not something they're seeking. But in the busyness of family life, in the busyness of 40 hour or 50 hour or 60 hour or how many other hour work week you have, um, getting time alone can at times be difficult. But I would suggest that solitude and meditation, there's a lost art in our day. We have to have screens in front of us. We've got to have something to keep the juices flowing. To be able to meditate. I remember Dr. Barrett talking one time, I can't remember all the circumstances, but I can still picture their old house when he lived in Greenville and he said his wife walked by and he's just sitting in a chair staring out the window. A little while later she walked by again and he apparently hadn't moved. Maybe he had breathed a little bit in between but maybe on a third trip by I don't remember all the details but she finally said Mike what are you doing? He said I'm thinking. (laughs) Well who knows maybe some of his best work was happening right there looking out of that window. Solitude and meditation are good and I would say necessary parts of devotional life. And there's a little phrase I don't think gets a lot of airtime, as it were, in the modern church. Devotional life. Meeting with and walking with the Lord. But Thomas is at this point beyond Solitude and meditation. Thomas clearly, if you read the account, you you see the the clear implications uh, and the can we say the, the result, the consequences of that absence in what we've read today. He's crossed over the line from the profitable use of these things as he's in isolation. He's crossed over the line to neglect. It may have been very fruitful for the disciples to be alone and think about the events of that day. To wrestle with their own thoughts. To wrestle with their own ignorance. And then to marvel at the miracle of the resurrection. But Thomas has pushed it too far. The others are gathered. And he's not there. Here's a struggle of unbelief. Isolation. To pull away. 
In a sense, it's almost a, an unspoken admission of a loss of hope or a, a loss of desire. The twelve meet. The Lord is there. And Thomas isn't. But there's another struggle with unbelief that I think we see in Thomas as well. It's not merely his isolation. But there's a critical spirit. Because obviously in the interim, the others have spoken to him. They've given their report. The Lord is risen. He's appeared here and there and there and to this person and that person and then to all of us at the same time. And Thomas says, unless I see the print of the nails in his hands and thrust my finger in there and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. The other struggle with unbelief that Thomas is dealing with is a critical spirit. Now, we can mingle together our thoughts here and we can think about some of the recent conduct and the recent failures of the disciples. And we can perhaps understand something of Thomas's mood. Yeah, you guys are coming to tell me this. Who are you guys? Where were you when Jesus was on the cross? Where were you when they arrested Him and took Him out of the garden? Of course, in the back of His mind the whole time, where was I? You know, sometimes when we're frustrated with others, the real problem is we're frustrated with ourselves. I just wonder, you think about this sometime in your own life, your own experience, your own struggles with sanctification. Think about it in the context of other people when their anger and frustration is expressed before you. I wonder how much of all these outbursts of anger and frustration come when people are really more frustrated with themselves than they are with anybody else. They just take it out on everybody else. Thomas, I say, manifests here something of a critical spirit. I mean, really. Who were these men that he should give attention to them? Who were these men that they deserved him being present with them in a time where his world is turned upside down? Can I suggest to you that in both of these things, in his isolation and in his critical spirit, there can be, and I would suggest there even is, a good root. I mean, when you think of isolation and meditation, David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, I doubt that most of his psalms were penned while he was at a dinner table with 30 or 40 or however many people were having dinner in the palace that night. So isolation or coming alongside or getting alone and being in solitude, meditating, is I say there's a good root to that. But that's not the whole of Christian experience. This critical spirit 
Well, how can there be a good root to that? Well, think of the Bereans who had heard in the synagogue this unfolding of the Old Testament about a, a suffering and then risen Messiah, and they go away and they search the Scriptures whether these things are so. They want to engage. They want to examine the truth of what they've heard. It can be good. But the flesh, how often our flesh can turn strengths into weaknesses. It's one of the things our Brother Munger said very often in session meetings and even in dealing with others. Sometimes our greatest strength is at the same time our greatest weakness. Well, these things may have been strengths in the heart and life of Thomas. But he's let the flesh turn them into weaknesses. He's let the flesh hold him back from being present, from pursuing the means of grace, if you will. I wonder how often if you're looking for a perfect church, if you're looking for flawless ministers and instruments of communicating truth, well, you'll never be in church. You'll never be under the preached Word. Thomas missed a great blessing. Thomas missed. We've talked before about things in the lives of these disciples. The fact that as best we know, only John is present at Calvary. I've thought about those other eleven. Those other ten. The rest of their lives as they expound under the inspiration of the Spirit exactly what was being accomplished in those hours upon the cross. I mean, the hinge upon which all of eternity turned. And they could have been there. They weren't there. What a blessing Thomas missed. But I found it interesting reading the account that J.C. Ryle gives in his treatment of the Gospels as we look at Thomas and we look at others. He said this, a passage of Scripture like this we need not doubt, was written for the special comfort of all true believers. The Holy Ghost knew well what the dull and the slow and the stupid and the doubting are by far the commonest type of disciples in this evil world. The Holy Ghost has taken care to supply abundant evidence that Jesus is rich in patience as well as compassion and that He bears with the infirmities of all His people. Let us take care that we drink into our Lord's Spirit and copy His example. Let us never set down men in a low place as graceless and godless because their faith is feeble and their love is cold. Let us remember the case of Thomas and be very pitiful and of tender mercy. Our Lord has many weak children in His family, many dull pupils in His school, many raw soldiers in His army, many lame sheep, in his flock. Yet he bears with them all and casts none away. Happy is that Christian who has learned to deal likewise with his brethren. I want to read that phrase again. Happy 
is that Christian who has learned to deal likewise with his brethren. There are many in the church who, like Thomas, are dull and slow, but for all that, like Thomas, are real and true believers. Yes, there are struggles with unbelief, and Thomas has put at least two of these on great display. But seriously, is isolation. And there are, when I look at the church today at large, I marvel. I'm overwhelmed at the condition of our times. But is isolation the answer? And the critical spirit, well, I say Thomas had struggles with unbelief. But think with me secondly of the blessings of renewed faith. Thomas isn't left in this condition of unbelief. The Lord doesn't leave His weak and wayward children alone. Again, it's not written for us. But I don't think it takes a wild imagination to think through the events and those intervening days in the life of Thomas. We don't know exactly at what point the report of the other disciples came. Obviously, they have sought him out and said, Thomas, we saw the Lord. I mean, others saw him first, but then he appeared to all of us. Some believe that Thomas actually showed up that night in the upper room after the Lord left. Thomas didn't miss church, he was just late. I thought about that in applying Dr. Paisley's sermon about what happens when you miss church. Well, in the case of Thomas, if that's true, he shows up late. He's just kind of dragging his feet. He, he doesn't get there. Some, I think it was J.C. Ryle even suggested, we can't know for sure that Thomas is worthy of blame. Yeah, maybe there were some circumstances. Maybe where he was staying was at a great distance and he, and he couldn't be there or he was late. Uh, but he agreed that most seem to see, even the way it's couched, that there's, there's some neglect, there's some sin here in Thomas. I was thinking about that. If he doesn't miss it, he's just late. And he missed the best part of the, of the, the service. Well, it's kind of turned upside down here. If you're late, well, you miss the songs, you miss the rejoicing, and you're stuck with just the sermon. Well, we wrestle with those aspects. But whenever it was, whether it was later that night and Thomas shows up and they say, you should have been here earlier, or whether it's during the week and the days intervening where these men seek out this isolated brother and they find him and they give report, what are the thoughts of his heart? How is he wrestling? Can all of these dim-witted disobedient, carnal disciples. Oh yeah, it's me too. Uh, can they all be wrong? Well, when I say we look at the blessings of renewed faith, the first thing I would highlight here is seeking. Seeking. Perhaps one of the biggest things that we see in Thomas is that he didn't stay where he was. Whatever it was, however low he was, whatever sin or neglect is involved in his case, and he misses 
that appearance of the Lord to the others, He doesn't stay in that place. He's worked it through enough to the point that He is there the next Sunday. He's not going to say, well, I don't know whatever happened, but it doesn't matter anyway, and I'm not going to come at the next meeting either. No. The testimony of others, doubtless the Spirit's working in His own heart, doubtless that critical Spirit that's within Him has been turned appropriately by the Spirit of God to a Spirit of self-examination. Maybe He's thinking a little bit about the beam in His eyes when He allowed the specks the splinters in his other brethren's eyes to make him isolate himself. You know, folks, that's one of the things we need in days where the church, again, the church at large, but of course this church as well, we could have a host, a list of problems, of things we don't quite have right. But to dwell on those things, never engage in self-examination. Never engage in seeking to understand more about what we need. What problems we have. To be critical of self. So I say Thomas is found seeking. He's not content or resolved to say, well, it's all over. We somehow were wrong or we missed it. No, He returns. He's not absent again. We're waiting for perfect messengers. We'll never come. But let it not be true of us. Let us be seeking. Because that's going to be part of renewed faith. But also I would suggest we see here experiencing. You read this and you see the Lord's appearance to him. And John is at pains here to parallel these two appearances. The miraculous is on display. Again, he highlights the doors are locked. They're shut in there, but the Lord appears. There He is. The Lord also comes and after He's uttered those words of peace afresh, He approaches Thomas. He doesn't say, Thomas, I missed you last time. He goes and says, Thomas, thrust your finger in here and your hand here. I know your whole heart, Thomas. I know what you've said. Here, Thomas, I say, is brought face to face with the genuinely miraculous. He's brought face to face with a risen Savior. I found it interesting that commentators are somewhat divided. I think most seem to indicate they don't believe Thomas touched the Lord and thrust his hands into the wounds as he had said he would have to do. Some said maybe he did. I'm inclined to see in Thomas the melted heart that wouldn't think of reaching his hand toward the body of the risen Lord, except perhaps to embrace him.
It's Christ's words and Christ's presence that melts the heart and assures the mind of this wayward disciple. Here I say, this Thomas that has finally been seeking is found experiencing. I remember my youth experience. I was one of the first times, I think if I got it right, it was the second time that I ever attended Faith Free Presbyterian down in Greenville. Dr. Cairns was ministering. They had a situation very similar to our own. It was a home that had been renovated and enlarged and had a a sanctuary. There's actually another church still meeting and has been for years in that place. Like came, maybe a little like Thomas, at the last minute, and uh, was ushered, ooh, no more seats in the back. I was that close to Dr. Cairns, three, maybe four feet. And about ten minutes into the message, I'm a little bit groggy. I, at times, would kind of doze in chapel, sometimes at school, and Struggled a little bit in church, and I remember that message. I could almost remember all of the double alliterated seven points of that sermon that night. But I remember being arrested and awakened. <laughs> and for the next 45 minutes of that hour plus sermon, very alert, very challenged, very blessed. It was a life changing night. I never from that night struggled. In church. Now, it's easy to say. You usually stand up and talk during church instead of sitting in a nice soft chair. Okay, I get that. But even seated where you're seated. Because it changed my perspective on expecting to hear something. Now that can go different ways from the doctrine underneath the messages and all of the other parts of that. But what do we expect? If we're seeking and we're gathered in afresh, will it be that Christ's presence and Christ's words are enough to enliven the soul? To bring us out of that dangerous path we've started? But Thomas is not merely seeking and experiencing. He's also testifying We read, after the Lord rebukes him, he says, Be not faithless, but believing. Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. We didn't read verse 30, but the very end of this chapter that concludes our reading and concludes this appearance of Christ to Thomas John says many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. That really is the conclusion of John's Gospel. Chapter 21 that we'll look at next week, Lord willing, is an epilogue. There is the culmination, the statement of purpose that is put before us in this Gospel. And it's interesting. I remember my 
professor, one of my professors, and actually my supervisor for my thesis when I was in Wales studying, in his book on the Trinity, he speaks about there being two bookends in John's Gospel with reference to the deity of Christ. And here, it's from the mouth of Thomas that this confession of the deity of Jesus is given. I think it is one of the ironies of history that one of the fullest and most direct witnesses to the deity of Christ comes from the lips of a man who's gone down in history being called Doubting Thomas. I don't know that that title should stick with our brother Thomas. And I don't even know if doubt is the key part of his struggles. Perhaps it was despondency that was at the root of it all. Certainly, doubts entered in. But as we've said, we see in him the struggles between unbelief and renewed faith. Well, Thomas has given a testimony here of the deity and of the lordship of Jesus. But in many ways, do we not see Thomas exemplifying for us what he'd heard from the mouth of that father whose child he could not heal? Lord, I believe. Help Thou mine unbelief. When we look at the blessings of renewed faith, we see Him seeking, we see Him experiencing, and we see Him testifying. That is where we need to be. Instead of stuck in unbelief, where we would find isolation and a critical spirit. How many times, can we not say how many repeated times and repeated applications of these blessings of renewed faith do we need? Should it not even really be that every Sabbath we bring hearts that are seeking and then experiencing, and then testifying. Because we have indeed good news of a risen and ascended Savior to share. We just have a few windows into the life of Thomas. Thank God, ultimately, they are encouraging windows. And don't lead us. We can frail as He. A man of like passion such as ourselves. But a man who's rescued from the wrong road. The encouragement of Christ's appearance to Thomas. Let's bow our heads and hearts together. Lord, we today come and would have to confess in the privacy of our own hearts how much of this story has been repeated in our lives. But we're grateful that You don't leave Your children alone. We don't expect a supernatural appearance of the risen Christ, but yet 
those strivings of your spirit, those seasons of self-examination that brought Thomas back, and then you met with him. Lord, give us something of these. And cause us, as this one that secular history records, went even as far as India, preaching a resurrected Savior, preaching the Gospel of the Lord Jesus. Prosper Your Word. Lord, give us each hearts to lay it to heart, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.